Hello and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. I wanted to take a minute to say thank you to the latest person to leave a review for Broadening the Narrative on Apple Podcasts. Mary Kay Miller wrote, such a great podcast. Nikki creates a safe space for her guests to be vulnerable and her listeners to learn from others. Highly recommend. Thank you so much for this kind review. It really made my morning when I read it the other day. I want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed Broadening the Narrative. If you're listening and haven't already, you can head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review too. I know I say this every episode, but your engagement helps with visibility, so each rating and review really does matter. The music for Season 3 is titled Love Is by Bandy. Here at the beginning, I also want to provide a trigger warning for references to police brutality, state-sanctioned violence, and abuse that come up in this conversation, and this episode has been marked as explicit. You can find Broadening the Narrative on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I love connecting with all of you on social media. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. This joy that I'm claiming for myself, I'm claiming for those who whose shoulders I stand on and for those who are coming after me, that we will no longer be defined by the the the, the, the joy and the pleasure uh, that we are denied. We will no longer be defined by the, the, the liberties that we are denied in the United States. We will no longer be defined by the lack of dignity that is shown to black folks. We will now be defined by um, our ability to embrace who we are. Um, and that is a, a, a liberated people, a joyful people, um, a people who deserve um, pleasure unapologetically and without restriction. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I'm joined by a guest who is so very important to me. Tina Strawn is here. Tina is an anti-racism facilitator, racial and social justice advocate, and pleasure activist. She's the founder of Legacy Trips, which are three-day anti-racism trips visiting the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration in Montgomery, Alabama, and utilizing spiritual practices such as yoga as tools to dismantle racism. She is the owner of Speaking of Racism podcast, which has been downloaded over 350,000 times. The podcast is dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions of racism in the U.S. She is part of the Black Sit social movement and currently living abroad while writing her book, Are We Free Yet? And exploring and examining what it looks like and feels like for a queer Black woman to be free and find home. It's so great to be talking with you, Tita. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, when I was reading over your bio to use for your intro, I wondered if all these titles you hold are things that make you think, yeah, that makes sense. This is where I saw my life going or what that's like for you. (laughs) You know what? I am. I'm not as comfortable with the titles that the titles have been really strange because it went from fully participating in a capitalist, you know, uh, system, corporate America, which um, I'm a retired fitness professional. I was a, I I held many titles such as general manager and regional support lead and aerobics coordinator. Like I held all these titles that made sense 
in the corporate world of, of capitalism, even in the health and, and wellness industry to being like, nah, fuck that shit. I don't like need to subscribe to those titles and roles. Like, and they, and what do they mean? And they have so much less value to me now than they did when I held them. So it's a matter of, um, what feels true for me. Um, and it's funny that you even ask it that way. Like, did I envision myself as a activist? Did I envision myself as this social and racial justice? Like, no, <laughs> like when, when I was a kid, right. When I'm thinking about what I want to be, when I grow up, definitely mom and wife was always in that, um, in that category, but also it was, you know, things like I want to be a librarian and I want to be a teacher and I want to be, you know, I want to be a dancer and a singer. And like, I wanted to be so many different things. I wanted at one point to be an interior designer. I wanted to be, um, a, an activity director on a cruise ship, right? Like when you're eight, you want to be, well, I wanted to be like 12 things. And I just knew that what life held for me was that I was going to be able to do all of these things. And then there comes that, that moment where it's like the realization of, so as an adult and in particular, as an adult in my queer black skin, there are restrictions. There is a way that society wants me to be. There is a, a role that I need to play if I want to attain certain things. Um, so it was, you know, learning about where I would fit into white supremacy if I wanted to participate in supremacy culture and my understanding of a good life, everything good was associated with money and status and title. And as a black person, I would be able to attain more, the more I made white folks feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. So it has been such a strange and bizarre and glorious uh, transformation going from a place where there was significant value in these titles and roles back mm -hmm. in my, you know, pre unpacking of internalized racism pre um, decolonizing life where those were things that were important to now mm -hmm. as I'm smashing down all of those societal things that that are that actually work against my freedom and against my favor I used I thought that was the lie that I bought into that American dream lie of mm -hmm. if I do x y and z do those things that American society and the patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism dictate, then I can have this certain kind of life. Um, and realizing that's not at all the case. So I found myself saying, well, I don't feel free. And so therefore, what can I start to do to feel free, get free, be free? And uh, what, what, what then would happen was a lot of unpacking and, and, and disrupting and dismantling first inside myself and then being vocal about it with others, which is the ways that I accidentally fell into this place of calling myself an activist and an advocate. And, and then even moving in that, in those spaces and then with those roles and titles and what does that even mean into, do I want, to identify with the thing that I'm against. And I'm so I'm even there now. I'm even in a place where 
okay, so anti-racism is this thing that I talk about, teach about, facilitate about, but is that an identity that I like associate with who I am as a, as a person, as a being, as a human? Um, and sure, if we're talking about, well, Tina, what do you do? Those are some things that I do, but those aren't, that's not who I am. And so um, I recently have, um, I've recently gotten the help of a, um, a marketing and development team, like a product and development team. And they came up with a new logo for me. And the logo included these three words under my name, which obviously I helped participate in coming up with some of these things that ways, ways that I describe myself. So what I really am feeling connected to right now, Nikki, is saying things like, I am a Black joy advocate. I am an author. I am a liberation activist. Right. So these things that I feel truly embody the way that I live my life, those are the, the, the ways that I want people to, to describe me. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so much there already. Um, <laughs> that I just, I love and that just thinking about little Tina and all the things you want to do and be, and I have a almost seven-year-old and who had this like crisis, uh, I guess like different kids maybe handle it different ways, but um, this kid had a full crisis because I guess in school talking about what are you going to be and just having a really rough day. And I just cradled this kid. I'm talking to this kid and I'm like, what, what's going on? And looks at me and says, I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. And I was just like, okay, that's a lot of pressure. Like you're sick, like enjoy your life. And I have a friend, Danielle Stocker, who talks about like, rather than what are you going to be when you grow up? It's like, what kind of person are you going to be? Like, are you going to be someone who's Mm -hmm. kind? So having that conversation with this little one and um, just being like, okay, so are you okay now? And then saying, well, I don't know what I'm going to name my kids. And so I'm just like, what are we doing to children? First of all. So I love that you didn't feel like boxed in. You felt like you had like all these options, but also that as you've grown and like, I love the way that you approach work and talking about it starts with yourself first, but then also these things don't define me. This isn't like, I'm not this, um, anti-racism educator or whatever the title is across corporate America or in the spaces you're in now. And like, you know, today we're going to be talking about joy and liberation. And as you're like getting at that, um, I've just been really looking forward to this conversation with you. And I know that I've never told you this, but I know that I am where I am on this lifelong journey, like because of you, like, um, and I don't know if that puts a lot of, of pressure on you, but just like the way you approach the work that you do, um, and just being really grateful for who you are as a whole human, um, not just these, these things that, um, you know, the titles that you hold. And so, yeah, like I've learned so much from you and I'm just really grateful for you. Thank you. No, that, that means a lot when I think about, Mother Maya Angelou's explanation of legacy, she says, legacy is every life that you touch. Mm-hmm. So when I hear things like that, that just connects me to what I want to be in the world and, and is, is touch lives. So I'm really, I appreciate that. Very kind. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, uh, yeah. In addition to what you've kind of already shared about where you were in your life, where you saw yourself going, is there anything else about yourself, your background that you think would be helpful for our conversation? And I forgot to ask you about your pronouns as well for setting the foundation for our conversation. Sure. My, my pronouns are she and they, and 
I don't know that I would can think of anything else, you know, in this short of a conversation where I would say, no, you need to know this about me. I mean, I was, I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I mean, I could, I could come up with like my whole little life story to go into, but no, I think what's, what, what I think can be helpful to know is I am the daughter of a preacher, um, a preacher from Chicago and, and a teacher uh, born and raised in New Orleans um, and was raised in uh, predominantly white spaces in what is now the Silicon Valley in California and uh, went to Christian private schools, uh, which were white, the, the majority of, of my childhood. Um, but then again, like I said, I'm a, I'm a PK, I'm a preacher's kid. So I was raised equally in the black church uh, and as I was the white church. Um, and I would grow up uh, to, I, I would grow up very traditionally, I would say from a evangelical fundamentalist Christian background and home. Mm -hmm. And um, again, like I mentioned, I would uh, be, go into fitness as a, as a career. Um, I would get married and uh, to uh, my, my, I have an ex-husband. We were married for 11 years. We have three kids. Um, he passed away in 2016. Um, I always like to say that, that that's an important thing for me to note just because um, the, the being an ex-wife is an experience, but so is group being an ex-wife of a um, an ex who's passed away and having children with that, that person. And that created a whole set of, see, this is why I was, I, that's this is why I actually started to say, no, I don't have, there's something that they need to know. And then I can go into my life story. So I feel like now I'm just rambly. So I don't know. Like, I, I mean, yeah, no, I think that's all really good context, especially for like where we're going with the conversation, because you're touching on grief and things that are really important to who you are in this like duality in a way of living in these different spaces, um, your school versus the black church and your upbringing are all really important to knowing uh, who you are and what has shaped you. So, yeah. Okay. So how did you get from fitness to becoming an advocate and ad activist? Like even before where you are now, just that initial transition. Yeah, that initial transition began for me in July of 2016, when I accidentally saw the videos of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling being killed by police and that breaking me. And I didn't understand just how much that experience would change me. Um, but that was the beginning because it would, then we would get into November of 2016. We all remember what happened when Donald Trump became the president of the United States. And there was this, what the fuck moment that I think we, so many of us had, you know, globally, I was going to say maybe not globally, but no, I'll say globally. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, which then, you know, caused me like so many others, millions, um, of Americans in particular, you know, decided that we will no longer be detached and disconnected from the political process. We want to care, we want to be involved so that we can 
do whatever in our power to prevent something like this from ever happening again. So then there was the Women's March of 2017. Um, and that is that was a, the beginning of kind of my political awakening and mm -hmm. entrance into uh, an, a social justice understanding. Um, so what would then be take what was happening at that time is I was in my fitness career, uh, arguably maybe at the top in many ways of my fitness career, but also going through deep racial, racial awakening uh, as well as socially, as well as politically. Um, and then I you know, became involved in not only some um, political things that were happening where I lived at the time with my wife and, and, and my kids in um, a suburb of, of Atlanta, you know, starting to, to get mobilized and activated around, oh, okay, to be a good um, politically aware person and to be a good Democrat even, I we do things like we canvas and we phone bank and we, you know, write postcards and all of these things, right? So it was at around that time, um, also starting to get involved with, with um, some grassroots organizations locally that were speaking out against racial um, injustice. So getting connected kind of for the first time with Black Lives Matter groups and groups that were focused on um, advocating for Black Lives. So all of that was taking place while I was in my fitness career. So I'm teaching classes um, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. I'm in front of hundreds of people teaching things like yoga and cycle and cardio kickboxing and Zumba and Aqua. And what would eventually happen is um, I read a book by Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy. And, uh, you know, that was it, it was a profoundly impactful story, um, true story, you know, he shares so many experiences of, um, of folks lost in the system, black folks, well, not lost in the system, folks that are experiencing the system and, and some surviving the system and uh, sadly too many not surviving the system. So learning about what the criminal justice system looks like for black folks, what it does to um, innocent people, um, what, what the understanding is and what the impact of having um, a, a Supreme Court that is aware that there is um, a level of, I'm trying to think of the exact wording of the, this language, um, the inevitability of error in the in the ways that the, the death penalty is administered. So they, they're aware that there is going to be a percentage of folks that are going to be put to death by this nation. And they know that this person was innocent or or you know, just 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 the level of injustice that I began to understand as a result of reading Just Mercy, as a result of learning about Brian Stevenson's work and the Equal Justice Initiative. And that also being at a time where we're in now it's 2018, we're in midterm elections, um, living in the state of Georgia, we have an opportunity to, um, to elect the very first black female governor in the history of the country, uh, Stacey Abrams. Mm -hmm. So I had the privilege in, uh, of being able to 
meet her, hear her on many occasions and volunteer for her campaign and, and the, the campaign of another local black woman um, that was living um, in, in my neighborhood at the time. So what began to happen is that my teaching began to bleed into my activism and my activism began to bleed into my teaching. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm, you know, teaching cycle classes and people are coming because it's a good workout and I've got great music and great energy, but there's also this justice thread in there. You know, I'm definitely doing, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I I'm, I'm bringing a different, uh, a little bit more into, uh, to cycle and, and into my yoga studio also when I'm teaching yoga classes. Um, and so that's really how it happened. I decided that I wanted to um, go to visit the lynching memorial and the Legacy Museum, um, which, as you know, that's that's what my legacy trips are. We take um, these three day weekends to visit the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration where we utilize the practice and philosophy as, of yoga and other spiritual practices as tools to dismantle racism. And I know you're gonna be going on one of those trips coming up in December. So excited about that for you. Um, but I knew upon visiting and wanting to be very intentional about using my voice to speak truth, I, as a yoga teacher, I decided that I wanted to take folks to the lynching memorial in the Legacy Museum for the purpose of, um, again, letting this life-changing ancient Indian practice be sort of a framework and hold the framework for the anti-racism work that I was doing on myself and was inviting others to, to do along with me. And so out of all of the locations where yoga teachers host retreats, which are typically very glamorous and you know, they're on a beach somewhere in Bali and there's, you're being fed these five course meals and you're having these beautiful experiences. I'm like, let's go do yoga at the lynching memorial, you know, um, just because I, again, I, I feel like it was such an important, it is such an important place, I believe, for all Americans to go and experience, but anyone who wants to have an understanding, uh, a, a, a fuller perspective and understanding of American history and the role that American terrorism has always played uh, domestically as it relates to um, Black folks um, and as, as it relates to the indigenous people that were here before, um, you know, this nation became what it is. So it, it was simply an evolution of who I was becoming that caused that bridge for me from being a fitness professional and teaching these yoga and cycle classes to being on this journey of activism and advocacy. Yeah, so a lot there um, with the election of Donald Trump. Like, so I, I want to own that, like, I did cast a vote for him, um, not to make it seem like, so now I'm absolved, like, because I'm not, I don't vote that way anymore, or I would do that differently now, um, you know, because I know I can still do harm and, and I'm still working on that. Um, but hopefully to show that, like, people can change and, um, and like, people can start to care. Uh, and so, like, for you, like, the, your process and what you saw. And, and I'd want to put this out there too, because I know that you did um, a webinar about this, like for people to not share videos of uh, people who are 
killed by the police. Um, like just stop sharing them. Uh, like, Oh man, what did you call it? Um, there's like black, a word. Dude. Black trauma porn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that phrase black trauma porn. And so, um, so yeah, so I wanted to say that like, as you start like kind of your awakening and like for me in 2017 was when things really started to change for me, um, becoming involved with be the bridge organization, um, which is a Christian organization. Um, and now like, I'm not part of the evangelical church anymore, but that's a whole other, whole other story. But yeah. So like for you and your backdrop and where you were coming from and just hearing all these little moving pieces for you. Um, and man, it's just really cool. Like the, the campaigns you got to be a part of and the things you got to do locally and in, in Georgia. Um, but yeah, so then that was kind of all your, your intro to who you were becoming and who you're still becoming. So I'm just curious, like, how did you get now to where you are as, um, like the word you used a black joy advocate and liberation activist? It was 2020. It was the year of 2020. It was the year of grieving so much. It was living through a year that was so heavy and so full of black death um, viral black death. And that term I just used, uh, black trauma porn. That is, you know, that's not a term that I've coined. That's a term that is used in justice spaces, um, to describe the, um, videos of black folks losing their lives in a variety of ways, primarily at the hands of the state, but also what we saw with Ahmaud Arbery and just random white dudes in Georgia gunning down a black man, you know, and then for those videos to circulate so wild, widely, um, you know, globally, and for us to consume them as entertainment, um, or even as for for whatever reason, we're, we're consuming it and what is happening because as a result of such consumption at such high numbers and such, um, and, and it's so, we, we become desensitized. And this is, this, is, this is the contributing factor to what anti-Blackness is about, is the denial of Black humanity. And when we are seeing these images over and over, um, and the lack of dignity, and, and, and in addition to just the sheer horror of capturing these murders and then circulating them as though they are, you know, what, as though they are, they should not affect us, as though to watch human lives come to an end in such gruesome ways, like we should, that like, that, like that's a normal thing. And that is a place where our, I believe that as we step into these terms, like we call ourselves as activists and, and advocates, that what we are really saying is we are acknowledging Black folks' humanity. We're acknowledging humanity, uh, the humanity of everyone. And if we, and, and we should not accept such denigration and disrespect of life as for these you know, these videos to, to continue to circulate. So um, recognizing that we've, we've got to, I'm actually trying to think about was, 
I'm, I'm wondering, it was your question more, I'm just, I'm, I'm talking about and getting caught up with my, my feelings about how, yes, observing the videos of Philando and Alton were what shook me and struck me um, at that time. And, and when we think about really the civil rights movement, right? And how much of that was precipitated by um, Emmett Till being lynched and his mother's brave decision to um, have an open casket where those pictures were circulated around the world and, and recognizing that there is a reckoning that we do in our souls when we make these observations. And we can allow them to, you know, be an emotional, we can have an emotional reaction. But my, my assertion is not that we shouldn't be talking about these things. We need to understand that they are happening. Um, but my assertion really being more so as we have to, number one, honor the lives of the Black folks that we are watching lose theirs in these horrific final moments and that not needing to be what motivates any of us to want to do something different um acknowledging that yes can can it be this can it be a powerful instrument yes absolutely but do we need to continue to expose ourselves to these I, I just keep thinking of horror. I, it's just horror. And I'm not a person who enjoy, who, who likes like horror in my, what I consume media wise either anyway. Um, so we just have to decide what is it that we need? Do, do I need to see nine minutes of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck to feel like this is wrong and to say, I wanna be a part of dismantling whatever allows for this to continue to happen in our country. So it's coming back to me just as far as what brought the joy piece as I'm, cause I'm getting lost in the grief, right? That's, that's, that was your question. How did I get from this place of, um, to where my focus is now the joy and the liberation. It was because of 2020 just brought me to my knees as it did so many others around the globe. And we are not only observing all of this black death, we are living through a global pandemic. And the grief that living in this time, um, what, what that means as well. Um, and just getting, I also went through a lot of personal tragedies in 2020. So these, it was layer upon layer upon layer of trauma and which took away my hope, which brought me to one of the lowest points in my life I've ever been, which then makes me say, I'm either going to figure out a way to live or this is going to kill me. And what it turns out is that I needed to find a way to get from grieving to a place where I feel like I want to breathe, which is what liberation means for me. And what I would discover is that there's this missing element and that missing element is joy. And it, and joy was kind of, it, it was previous to 2020 in my life, this 
thing that I, I knew of, I understood, or I thought I understood in some terms, Audre Lorde speaks about joy um, in this way. She says that once we are able to feel joy, once we are able to recognize that we can feel joy, then we can feel love, then we will, we can demand that all parts of our lives feel like this. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a level and a measure of joy that we get all get that I've experienced. I won't, I won't speak for everyone, but I, you, you may be able to relate to this where as, as a person, I used to have a feeling where if I was experiencing too much joy, I felt guilty about that. If I was too happy, if things were going too much my way, I was like, Ooh, I need to be more humble or, ooh, let me not get too attached to things going so well because then I'm going to be so thrown off when things go wrong. Like we have built in societal, um, these, 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 uh, these triggers that, but I say societal, it's incredibly intentional. It's, 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 it's by design um, uh, through white supremacy, through the patriarchy and through capitalism, that if we are experiencing too much joy, we're gonna, it's going to lead us off of the societal track that they need us to stay on for all of these oppressive systems to, to, to operate. And if we start to recognize that, oh, life isn't about let me work as much as I can and fit as much labor into this specified amount of time that with during which I will receive a certain amount of, of compensation, which is not enough to sustain a life of joy. It's not enough to sustain um, even taking care of ourselves in too many cases. Um, you know, if we begin to just get too comfortable in a plate with our joy, we're not going to be a benefit to the machine that is mm. destroying us. So it was this realization that if I'm going to live and I do want to live, then there is more. I believe that there is more for me and I believe there's more for us. And I want to shift to seeing if my healing can get me to uh, another place where I want to live and I want to be here. Mm -hmm. And it was these beautiful moments of joy and pleasure that let the image you are projecting instead of the humans you are protecting it's deadly if even one adult becomes accepting it lessens the presence of suicidal thoughts of these adolescents you're putting people on the streets and trying to flex about it this type of evil is deceiving and i'm vexed about it it shuns believers and i need for you to recognize it true love is healing and i plead for you to expedite it realigning and realizing the silver lining never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols deeply vital we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and makes up a vile Love is kind, prunes of fear keeps me in mind, never fails. Mm. Yes, I love that so much. And on one of your calls in your Patreon community, I hope I wrote this down right. You had said, if I can't access joy, I can't experience liberation. So I feel like, you know, what you're saying is getting to that, like in the system that we're in, <laughs> the whole point is that you don't experience joy so that you can't access liberation and experience, uh, liberation. And then you're kind of going here with pleasure. And so I'm curious with your background, uh, in like having a father who was a pastor and being in these predominantly white schools that like, I know the narrative I was taught about pleasure <laughs> within those kind of spaces. Uh, yeah. What was that narrative like for you in regards to pleasure, whether in general or even in, in regards to, uh, your activism? 
So you know that the gift that uh, purity culture gave us uh, was pleasure is sinful, really. You know, we, we, we were allotted a very low level, low, little, small amount of happiness um, because God forbid, goddess forbid, you know, that we under, that we thought that we were here on this planet to be happy. What needs to be the narrative and what was the narrative for me, and you might be able to relate to this coming from a, an evangelical household, is that our purpose in life was to glorify God. And you, how you feel about that, if you're happy or not, if you live a good life or not, is irrelevant. What's important is, is your life worthy to be a sacrifice to God? Um, because that's the point of it all. So I remember Nikki being a little girl and before I was told what my purpose in life was, I had an innate understanding that I'm here to be happy. I'm here to be free and do what I want and live you know, the way that I want. And what my parents did probably inadvertently was uh, you know, for, I, I have a, I have, my memories of, of my childhood for the most part are really lovely. Um, and privileged and full of a lot of happy little girl happiness, you know, uh, that doesn't mean perfect. Right. So, but, but I definitely just thought that the world had nothing but opportunity and amazing adventure for me. But as I would get older and learn more about what the Bible teaches um, with and, and the ways that the patriarchy upholds what the Bible teaches and the way that white supremacy also upholds the Bible and all of these things, I would learn, oh, my role is to be as small as possible to fit into um, these gender distinctions that make me fit into society in a way that is going to continue to perpetuate us not being free. It's just going to continue to, you know, my, my, my being here, my purpose is to be a wife and to be that help meet to my husband and to procreate and bring children into the world and make them into little people who will also go forth and preach the gospel. So there was no space for pleasure and joy here. Um, that's what I was taught, you know? So I was, I'm, it was really a joke to say the gift that purity culture gave was like, I don't, I can't, like, that's a question I'm asking myself right now. What gifts did purity culture give us? It gave us a bunch of lies, which is also what I got from the church. Um, so I, I definitely want to add that because I don't know if I, <laughs> I've been talking a lot about my upbringing. I am absolutely out of uh, the church in any form of, of organized religion. Um, while very spiritual, there is not a, a, a religious um, group that I associate with. Um, I love is my religion. I know that's very like, woo woo and new agey and hippie or whatever you want to call it. But that's, that's really how I operate. Um, so this, the pleasure piece has been a intentional decision to remember that before I was told what life was about, I knew inside of me intuitively that life was about pleasure and that the closer I get to embodying that life is here for me to experience and there will be, and, and that pleasure is not something that should be denied. Pleasure is not something that should be um, withheld. That's the other thing I'm kind of in a space of recognizing the, the ways in which we withhold 
goodness from ourselves, withhold pleasure, withhold joy, because we feel like it's too much, you know, have we earned, you know, associating some associating pleasure with labor production? Have we been, have we been productive enough to enjoy this as opposed to just, we should be enjoying because that is just innately what we should be doing, like just enjoying when we observe the birds, when we observe you know, um, ourselves in our most purest form, we, we, we have basic needs that we want met, right? But a basic need is just to love and be loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's, that's pleasure. Uh, and there's so many ways that we can experience it, but we are um, repeatedly reminded and it is reinforced in, in all of the oppressive systems about restricting and withholding yeah. pleasure so that we don't seek real liberation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you every time you speak, I'm like, there are so many nuggets there and there's so much that's so good. And that like reminds me of kind of what I've been navigating. But one, I love that you can remember and look back on little Tina, like the, the glimpses that I've gotten and just that joy and being able to like anchor yourself in what you knew before what you were taught um, so explicitly, especially within purity culture. And, and it's interesting. Uh, I was part of a church and I talked about this in another episode with pastor Emmy Kegler, um, that just the episode that just came out this week It's like that church seemed to almost, and it's predominantly white remedy church and it glorifies suffering. Right. And like almost to this point of wearing suffering, like a badge of honor, Yes. And so it's mm-hmm. so interesting that in a capitalistic society, especially for white people, when the drive is live a comfortable life, at the same time, there's this vein of your, your savior suffered, therefore you should suffer. And then it detaches you from caring about the suffering of others mm-hmm. is what I, is the, the kind of thread that I'm now seeing is like, there's a reason that we want to tap into suffering and act like suffering in this life doesn't matter because, Hey, one day. Right. But then it's like, okay, however, I'm still living a pretty comfortable life. Like, should I feel bad about that then? You know? Um, so there are all these layers within, within that. And so, yeah, for you to get to where you are kind of like, in so many ways, I feel like it's kind of this full circle, like you're just tapping back into childhood and to the things you knew in your life right now. And, you know, I, I wonder if part of this has led to the life you live now, a very nomadic life, um, like, and, and if you could speak to that. It has led me to this nomadic life. <sighs> So I have been a full-time nomad since February 1st of 2020. So into my year and a half where I've lived full-time in, in Airbnbs and hotels. And, and that was my decision. That was a, the decision and intention that my wife at the time, now my ex-wife um, and I made at the start of 2020. Um, and what we asked ourselves, uh, not ironically at all, is, you know, that's when I began asking the question, are we free yet? Because I was noticing all of the ways that I wasn't feeling free in my queer black skin in the United States. So um, that started me on this journey to say, well, then I want to discover what it could feel like 
to be free and safe in my queer black skin. Um, and so, and again, so it, I think so much of my decision to choose joy and to live this way, um, this nomadic way came from when I was, when I began to notice the ways in which I wasn't free. When I noticed that, okay, I know that my life has value, but if I live in a country where Breonna Taylor is killed in her sleep, in her home, by a SWAT team, by the agents of the state, and there be no accountability, no nothing, um, I have to really examine what then does it mean to be free? How, how would Brianna Taylor answer this question? And so that led me to not feeling free in the States, which said, well, then let's figure out what it could look like, or I would like to experience what living in my queer black skin outside of the US could look like. I'm going to venture to guess it's gonna look, it's gonna feel different. And I've been absolutely <laughs> correct. Um, and, and so many, you know, obviously I'm not the first black person to say I'm out of here. Uh, this is, that's, that's another uh, beautiful part of being um, in this movement that we call Blacksit, which is the term that we give to the resurgence of black Americans leaving either in part or mostly due to the racial violence and terror that we are experiencing in our home country of the United States of America. And it is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of us that are connecting online in a variety of different groups and, and uh, forums and, and connecting with one another all over the globe in, in countries outside of the US. And to realize that the commonality that we have is that we are, that we have found a new way of being. We simply want to be, it, it's as though living black in the United States somehow to the US means that we want to be, like we want to be activists. Like in order for me to survive or, or to live in the US meant that I would have to be an activist because I would always be trying to advocate for rights. I would always be trying to advocate for myself in a place that doesn't value my humanity, doesn't value my presence as, as a citizen of this country. So perhaps I can live outside of the US where I don't have to be an activist, I can just be who I am. What does, and what does that look like? What would I be doing? This kind of comes back to your question, you know, no, little Tina did not um, wake up one morning and say she wants to be an activist. I had all these other things. And then there were barriers that I experienced that kept me from those other things. And that was like, well, that doesn't feel free. So now it's this adult Tina saying, I want to go where I can do whatever I want. Um, and so I find myself right now um, speaking with you from Montego Bay, Jamaica, where I am living the life that I decided I wanted to live, which is I want to be high on a beach all day and writing. <laughs> like that's, that's, you know, there are other things that are involved in my life as well. Of course, I've got legacy trips, I've got a podcast, and I've, I'm involved in other projects and things as well. And my activism and my advocacy will 
always be a part of who I am because I am American. And as much as I have, I am conflicted about that truth, that is who I am. And so that does mean that I do still, I am always, I will always be connected to and attached to the United States um, personally, um, as well as the fact that I, I have three adult children, as well as the fact that my my friends and family and loved ones, like that's where I'm from. That's where my, my roots are, but my roots go deeper than that. And so now it is, I have the the pleasure and the honor and the privilege and the, and the, 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 benefit of being able to follow my roots deeper than just the U.S., following my roots to the place where I know my ancestors deserve joy and deserve and want pleasure for me. That's not something that they had access to um, when they were building a nation on the the blood of indigenous people and on our, our backs. That That's not what we that's not what my ancestors were able to do. So this joy that I'm claiming for myself, I'm claiming for those who, whose shoulders I stand on and for those who are coming after me, that we will no longer be defined by the, 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 the joy and the pleasure uh, that we are denied. We will no longer be defined by the, the, the liberties that we are denied in the United States. We will no longer be defined by the lack of dignity that is shown to black folks, we will now be defined by um, our ability to embrace who we are. Um, and that is a, a liberated people, a joyful people, um, a people who deserve um, pleasure unapologetically and without restrictions. Yes, like I, I can say that I love seeing your joy and your flourishing and your pleasure seeking. Like it fills me with such joy and um, helps my flourishing to see you flourishing. And, um, and that's something else I thought about with uh, pleasure with the, the backdrop that we had. So I spoke with Emily Joy Allison as well about church too and um, domestic violence. And one thing we we're talking about was pleasure. And, you know, she said like pleasure is a moral, a credible moral guide. It's not the only moral guide, but it is a credible moral guide. And I just, and, and she got into talking about like when you live in a traumatized body, like uh, with survivors of the church to abuse and things, you know, you have to heal that so that you can better decode what your, what your body's telling you, but that if it feels good, that doesn't mean it's wrong. And so mm. all these things that we're trying to untangle and for you with the black sit movement. And like, I thought about like James Baldwin having to leave to write. And so here you are leaving and you're writing this book and um, are we free yet? And so I was wondering in our last little bit of time together, I had a few questions and one is, could you share about your upcoming book, the title and the content and where people could pre-order it? Definitely. So the title is Are We Free Yet? And this book is both a personal reflection and a collective examination of our relationship to systems of oppression, such as white supremacy, the patriarchy and capitalism, and the ways that we center our joy, our peace and our pleasure as tools to get free, um, get free 
not only from those systems, but including those systems, oppressive systems. And, and so it, it really is about, honestly, Nikki, it's, a, it's, it's the story of grief of all of us in 2020, because it, 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 bas- it does tell the story linearly in 2020 of this is how, and, and if you just kind of go along with me in, in the, this narrative of us remembering where we were January 1st of 2020 and all hope filled that we were and all of the amazing things that we were looking for 2020 to give us. And, you know, we were so excited about um, just for by the time March got here, nothing was ever going to look the way that we thought it would. Nothing was ever going to be the same um, as we began to live in a world of COVID. Um, and then in addition to that, that, that simply being a new crisis, a new um, virus that had taken over the globe, but what was still present and which what, what also felt just more, uh, which made it feel just kind of like an additional assault is the fact that as, a, as Black folks, we were already living in a very sick society. We were already aware that there is this sickness and virus that is racism that we are dying from every day. So it was just, again, that layer upon layer upon layer. What did that look like for me personally? It's part memoir, but it also um, is an examination again of collectively what was happening because what we also can remember is while we're dealing with COVID, we also were experiencing reactions and responses to Ahmaud Arbery being killed in Georgia. We are also reacting and responding to Breonna Taylor and then to George Floyd. And finally, by the time that George Floyd was murdered and that video went viral, what we then experience is this national, really global, but specifically the national uprisings that were taking place in the street as, as folks were fighting back and fighting against the horror that is continuing to, um, and, and the terror and the violence that this country is responsible for. Not this country, Jamaica, that country, the US. Um, so just recognizing that for so many people, we are all, and, and, and I say for so many people, I'm speaking about all of us, Black folks were experiencing the summer of 2020 in a very different way than white folks were experiencing it. White folks seem to kind of be almost drunk with the emotion of realizing racism has come to their devices in a very, you know, um, uh, in a very uh, obvious way where it could not be denied anymore. And then we began to see the co-opting of Black Lives Matter. We began to see the, um, really the bastardization of the Black Lives Matter slogan in the ways that everyone was, it was, it was starting to have corporate sponsorship. So I'm obviously not speaking about the movement for Black Lives and the work that is done by so many folks to fight for the rights and the lives of Black people, but I'm speaking about just it because, you know, Black Lives Matter became, became this thing that for white folks represented more to them than what it meant to us. Um, Because us as black folks, we were, it it was an, it was an, I'm just, 
No, I'm, we can say this. It was annoying. That's not even the right word to describe the ways that white folks were reaching out to us, like the random white people that were reaching out, wanting to just asking the questions and uh, having the, those initial first feelings of what can we do? Oh my God, this is this, you know, our nation has all of a sudden been infected with this thing called racism that we actually about that we got rid of back when Obama was elected president. Like it, for, for white folks, some, some realities were taking place that for us, we already, of course, we're not only aware of, but we were also aware of the fact that this white attention on us is, is, is going to be short lived. There's not depth here um, because that depth would require a, a lot of self-reflection and examination and dismantling of current structures and things that exist that allow us to be in a nation where we are both fighting this global pandemic while also fighting this ongoing systemic racism problem that has existed since white people's feet landed on this part of the of the world so um this is the book the book is it, it talks about the ways in which I navigated from a place of deep grieving as a result of things that were happening personally as well as nationally um to understanding how important and necessary it is for us to heal how important and necessary it is for us to, again, access that joy so that we can get to a place where we wanna be free. Um, and what does that look like? And in so many ways, it is um, understanding that the very things that we've been told um, we should be wary of, or it, it, it doesn't involve what we think it involves, right? The ways that I have tapped into my peace and my pleasure have been, um, I'll say unconventional, but that and and, and non-traditional. So I, I get to tell this story obviously through a, a non-heteronormative way, through the, the the lens and the eyes of myself as a queer black woman. Um, and that there's a lot of talking about uh, sex in it. There's a lot of um, how I, how how I, cannabis plays a role for me in my healing, in my grieving, and in my spiritual practices. Um, it talks a lot about the role of music uh, and music making um, and love making and um, eating uh, and being on this beloved island that I'm on where, where that has just received me and given me so much um, soul nourishment. Um, my, my heart is just filled being here. Uh, and I'm just grateful that this land and this water and this air, this ganja filled air has received me um, at a time when I needed it. And so uh, Row House Publishing decided that they want to publish this story that I have. So uh, this book is supposed to be out uh, late next year. I think right now we're saying November. Um, and I'm don't think that it's available for pre-sale yet, but I would definitely encourage folks to follow myself and Row House Publishing uh, for when it will be available for pre-sale. Awesome. I can't wait to read it. And thank you for writing your story. And uh, I know that's that's a lot of vulnerability. Um, and so whenever I do read it, like just being able to hold that with care and listen to your story and 
Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. And you said November, right? Yes. Is when the, yes. the current date is. Okay, awesome. Through Row House Publishing. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to ask this question and I don't know if it if your answer differs depending on who's asking it. Um, and yeah, but like, what would you say to people who struggle with how to have joy as a part of their advocacy and activism? I think my first question, what comes up for me immediately is, well, what's the easy part of activism? Like what, what is coming naturally? It, does it come naturally for, for you to tap into feelings of shame, guilt? Um, are you easily able to connect to some of the, so to the sadness, to the, to the, um, to the things that break our hearts? recognize that that is a call Mm. to want to find joy for yourself and for those that you're advocating for. I I don't want to suggest that this is an easy path, but what I will say is that having spiritual practices, having Mm. things and, 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 and tools that connect you with your true humanity gets you closer to feeling this joy. Like joy is not, it should not be this foreign concept. We shouldn't be so easily. And and it's interesting. I was reading something about social media and how people are um, more likely to react and respond and comment and share those negative things um, um, and those things that are really um, sad and, and induce the bad feelings. It's it's as though we have be, again that desensit the, the desensitizing that happens because we become almost addicted to the sadness and the and the despair and the hopelessness. And mm-hmm. so, what I would encourage folks to do is that understand that the more that you um, stay seeking um, or 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 just looking for all of what is breaking our hearts, it's gonna eventually break you um, as well. Um, you have to be able to tap into your joy. Um, and again, the way that you do that is by tapping into who you really are. And that's what having spiritual mm-hmm. practices helps us to do is to, to tap into and to connect with those pieces of peace and pleasure, because then we can use that um, mm-hmm. as a guide for ourselves. We follow that. Um, we are able to experience it. And, and even when we're not able to experience it, um, hopefully we are looking for it. We're seeking it. And I love even what you were saying about how you appreciate following my journey of joy, because it does help you give yourself permission to have a little bit more joy. And that's the purpose of this, that, and, you know, yes, this question can be different for different folks, but I think at the end of the day, it's gotta be, we need to be able to access joy for ourselves especially because we're advocating for joy for others. This is simply a, a celebration of, and an acknowledgement of it being a part of our liberation and our humanity. Um, so it can't be this foreign thing for us. It's gotta be foundational. Yeah. I think for any white listeners who are on this journey, there's kind of this um, guilt. It's like, I can't experience joy. I can't tap into joy, but I love how you're showing that 
yes, you can. And you're still having these hard conversations and you're still dismantling systems of oppression inside of you. It's not, it's not an either, or it's a both. And, and so for you living in that and showing people how to do that. And I mean, I think that the guilt is just a part that we white people like have to work through. It's not like, you know, uh, just pretend like it doesn't exist or something like there, there's a reason that that's there. And so like working through that and sitting with that, um, but also being able to have joy and to know that that's necessary too. Um, yeah. Well, where can people stay up to date on your work with the book and anything else that you're doing? The best place right now is my website that will very likely be launched by the time this episode comes out, I'm hoping, because it's supposed to have been launched. Anyway, it's tina-strawn.com. Okay, awesome. I will put that in the show notes. Um, That's so great. And last question here. So a word that came up for me as you were talking about the year of 2020 and even what we're in now, like I've heard people talk about this word languishing, you know, there's kind of like this, we're not depressed as a country necessarily. Obviously there is depression, but it's like, you're not in this, oh, I'm all the way at the bottom and you're not always living at the top. It just feels like this languishing and this like dragging on of life. Um, So when I read that the other day, I thought about how you're showing a way to, you're not always living at the top, you know, um, and you're, you're raw and real and you, you show the full gambit of emotions yet still you show how you tap into joy, even while acknowledging grief, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the languishing even, so what is your hope for your own black joy advocacy and liberation activism kind of with this backdrop of where we are now? It, globally um and then the listeners you know most from the united states like listening in that people will make the connection between blackness and joy that blackness will not be associated with death and trauma and injustice that it'll be associated with rest and peace and pleasure and joy Mm -hmm. um as a queer black woman, I don't identify, or that is, that's, that is the, the challenge, the opportunity as I'm asking myself, am I free yet? Am I free to not simply identify with the ways in which I'm oppressed? Am I able to identify with the ways in which I'm free? So that's what I hope for, that everybody will, that I will be able to live this joy Um, and that this is what becomes, this is, this is what becomes how I see myself. I relate to myself and how others see themselves, how others relate to them. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Well, I join you in that hope and I really appreciate your time today and just getting to see your face here and connect with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Nikki. I've enjoyed it. I appreciate it. I just want to say thank you again to Tina Strawn for coming on to the podcast. As I mentioned in the episode, I'm so grateful for Tina, who really has been such an influential part of my life the past few years. Make sure to check out Tina's website that I'll put in the show notes to stay up to date on the work Tina is doing in the book, Are We Free Yet? As a reminder, the music for this season is titled Love Is by Bandy. 
and the full song will close out the episode. You can stream, purchase, and download Bandy's music at bandy17.bandcamp.com. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. I also want to thank Jordan Lukens for his help with editing and Danielle Bowen for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. Come back next week for a conversation with writer, speaker, and Church Clarity co-founder Sarah New about queer history in Asia and Pacific Islands. Grace and peace, friends. This is an old to my religion. It used to be a crown on my pendant. Now I'm ten toes down, reminisce. You were supposed to be the difference. But then when you got close to me, you flipped it and told me I'm the one who was conflicted. Keep it down, keep it hidden. Your colorful crown strictly forbidden. I'm telling you how because it's written. Pray that gay away. I used to listen and these words were like a prison. All it did was hurt and strip me of my feelings. So I strayed away. You're more concerned with the image you are projecting. Instead of the humans you aren't protecting. It's deadly. If even one adult becomes accepting, unless the presence of suicidal thoughts of these adolescents you're putting people on the streets and trying to flex about it this type of evil is deceiving and i'm vexed about it it shuns believers and i need for you to recognize it true love is healing and i plead for you to expedite it realigning and realizing the silver lining never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols deeply vital we need revival to break the cycles and unite our minds over what's inside and makes love up a love is kind prunes of fear keeps me in mind never written into me and i am sending him shamefully i pretend to be pleased with an antonym of me seats with the anti-inner me claiming this was invented no it's a form of violence only made worse by my silence centering my worth on your sirens my wiring is beautiful non-binary yeah you're beautiful queer trans gay yeah you're beautiful enough with the self-hate and raise a ladder if you can't relate it takes a lot of strength to decimate imputed shame and all the pain we breaking chains and bringing chains living to refrain from giving into oppressive reigns Savior teaching us that we should love our neighbor To love our neighbor we would have to learn to love ourselves But if we shelf immutable pieces of our framework Then can we say that we really know how to do it well Realigning and realizing the silver lining Never hypnotizing or weaponizing with false idols Deeply vital we need revival to break the cycles And unite our minds over what's inside and makes love more vials love is kind Prunes of fear keeps me in mind Never Give me hope, give me sunshine From the east to the west side Give me peace, give me rest I wanna go down to the wayside You are found as a place Ten toes down, you are Give me hope, give me sunshine From the east to the west side Give me peace, give me rest I wanna go down to the wayside You are found as a place Ten toes down, you are not erased Love is patient, love is kind Prunes of fear keeps me in mind Never Love is patient, love is kind